expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Are you saying it's a crime to think about violence? Yes, that's ridiculous. I assure you it's quite necessary. We were once a society plagued by violence. When we prohibited hostile thought, crime began to drop immediately. Over the past three generations, it's all but disappeared. So you believe that it's all right to tell people what they can and cannot think. It's an irrefutable fact that violent thoughts from others can lead to violent actions. Even if Balana had a violent thought, it was Frain who attacked that man. Which he only did because he telepathically received that thought from Balana. His mind was contaminated by the image and it resulted in a loss of control. He may have committed the physical act, but it was instigated by you. Where we come from, people are responsible for their own actions. And here, people are responsible for their own thoughts. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 12, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. And welcome to today's show, which is sure to be a controversial one. 519-661-3600, the number you can always call to reach us if you've got a comment, observation, suggestion, or any basic opinion you'd like to discuss. And, of course, you can always reach us by email at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today's theme, I guess, is, well, geez, what is it, Robert? Is it is it freedom of speech? Is it religion? Is it... Um, Immigration. We've got so many issues we're going to talk about, all related to an event that happened in London this weekend, and that was the visit of none other than Hirt Wilders, who is the head of the Austrian Party of Freedom. And he was in London on Sunday night, this past Sunday night. You and I were both there. What would you think? Well, it was an invitation-only event, so uh, we were very lucky to be able to uh, be invited to that mm-hmm. event. Uh, I found it very interesting. Um, what a lot of people may not know is that uh, Hert Wilders was not the only speaker there. Ezra Levant was there moderating, and Ezra interviewed a very interesting man by the name of Sam Solomon, mm-hmm. who I found just as engaging and as interesting as Mr. Wilders in what he had to say. Sam Solomon was a Muslim. As a matter of fact, he was being trained to be an imam. He knows the Quran by heart, of course, as many Muslims do, and he was a uh, Muslim jurist. And he explained his conversion process uh, to Christianity, and he also explained how he and his friends were browbeaten uh, through an entire system of fear to um, obey the dictates of their imam, and that was an eye-opener. I mean, we know that sometimes these people live in fear and they um, have the beliefs and, and do the things they do because of their culture of mm-hmm. fear and domination by others. But to actually hear it from a person in, um, talking about how he actually feared for his life just by using the word suppose. Remember that? Yes. He was um, in a group of about 15 of his friends with his imam there instructing them. And he was asking a question and he says, suppose 
and he didn't he was unable to get the rest of his question out because the imam jumped up sniffed around him and shouted out kufir mm-hmm. unbeliever more or less um, and and he feared for his life when his friends started to shout god is great and started to rally around him and he thought maybe he was going to be killed i'll tell you when he told us that story i thought i was watching a scene out of some horror horror movie it was chilling you know it was very chilling and I thought, you know, since you started with Mr. Solomon, I thought I'd carry on on that vein before we get back to Heert Wilders. But um, he's also an advisor to the British and European parliamentarians on the subject of Islam mm-hmm. and is author of a book called The Trojan Horse in which he uh, describes what he called stealth jihad, which refers to immigration as being part of Muhammad's plan. And, of course, that's a subject you're going to be investigating a little closer in a couple of minutes, aren't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. Um, now, of course, he found himself pulled towards Christianity, but, you know, in telling his story, I thought one of the saddest things that he said was he made the audience aware that the concept of love, as we understand it, does not exist under Islam. Only as an anti-concept. Yes. Islam, he says, is, a, is you know, and he's, he's an expert on the subject. He's been immersed in this, you know, is, is more about hatred and, you know, hating the other, which we're going to get into um, later in the show. Um, only in the sense of negative love, he said, is the word ever raised. You know, Allah does not love the kafir. You know, there's no positive love under Islam, and I think this has incredible negative and destructive ramifications for any society immersed in a doctrine like that. So I'll be adding my own analysis to this reality later in the show today with some incredible and enlightening insights offered by Scottish philosopher John McMurray, who had a lot to say on this exact same subject, same religion, same issue, almost a century ago. But um, here at Wilders, when he came on afterwards, you know, his, his basic point, and I guess his most contentious point, is that he thinks that Islam should be treated differently than the other major religions because you know, he thinks it is different from other major religions in very fundamental ways, and that's something else we'll be looking at today. And this, of course, makes uh, some people within that religion, and not even necessarily within that religion, but people who are of, uh, shall we say, a more universal viewpoint might make them angry, and some people violent, which is why I think, Robert, the security was so tight. <laughs> I counted, I think, about seven security guards there. We had to pass through metal detectors to get into the mm-hmm. event, um, through four security guards, and I saw at least three um, eyeing the audience as Mr. Wilder spoke. Oh, then you weren't looking that well, because there were more than that. And they, oh, really? They were really watching everyone. Oh. It, w- it was quite an intensive um, security. Well, people should realize that Mr. Wilders does have death threats, uh, uh, an outstanding death threat against him, a fatwa, if you would, and uh, he lives in fear himself. He, he, and for the last seven years, he has not lived a normal life because oh. of the fear of these uh, reprisals for what he's saying. Well, some of the things we want to look at today is, um, do Wilder's opinions warrant the treatment he's been getting from the Dutch government? Of course, he still has his trial to go through. Yes, he's yeah. involved in a hate speech yeah. crime by a human rights uh, tribunal, much as same as uh, we have the tribunals here in Canada. So we want to, you know, I thought we'd look today, you know, is he guilty of discrimination? You know, is the guy a jerk? Is he a nice guy? Just what is he thinking that's getting him into so much trouble? Is he right? Is he wrong? Um, I hope that by by the end of today's show, we'll have a pretty good idea and some answers to some of these questions. And uh, glad to report on today's show, we've got kind of an exclusive inside view for our audience. It seems like uh, from some of the media I've been covering that um, we are, we were among the few who were allowed in 
Uh, I don't know that media. any other media were allowed there. Now, Mr. Levant, Not in London, but even in, even in Toronto, I noticed the Globe Mail wasn't allowed in, but nope. the National Post was. Yes. So that was interesting in and of itself. In London, no media, to my knowledge, mm -hmm. were invited, except, of course, Mr. Levant is part of Sun News Network. Now, I was just saying, we also want to look at what, what is truly the nature of the problem and what are some of the possible solutions. Now, Robert, I find it kind of strange for you and I, since neither of us basically believe in deities as such, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you might expect that any discussion that we would have about the relative merits of differing religions might be kind of a non-discussion for us, wouldn't you think? Or Do well, you feel that way? No, because we're Good. totally surrounded by uh, the majority of people who do believe in, uh, in God, and I think it's incumbent on people like us who are atheists to understand the culture that we live in, to live in, and and wh why people think the way they do, because it affects us. I, I think it might even go further than that. I think that to the extent that any religion is premised on the idea of a supernatural, at least with me, uh, instead of a natural realm, uh, you know, and on, on the metaphysical level, I wouldn't be able to support that belief system. To the extent that a system of a religion is based on faith instead of reason. I mean, that, that means rejecting reason in favor of faith. Uh, I cannot support it. But it's interesting that despite radical differences on those levels, people can still have agreements on the level of ethics. Yes. Where some commonality can be found, and which is why even atheists and agnostics, you'll often hear them say this, and I've heard many of them say this, you know, I don't believe in God, but I support and believe in, in Judeo-Christian values. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, since these values are not really Judeo-Christian, but Roman and secular. But, but mm -hmm. that's a whole other story. I did a whole show on it, and thanks to John, uh, John McMurray, who uh, made that clear for us. But it's interesting. I've yet to find any person who might call themselves atheist or agnostic and who would say, but I support Islamic values. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not a mix. It, it, there's a complete incompatibility, and I had to ask myself why that was. And so... Some of the things you already brought up, the speech by Mr. Solomon, uh, some of the comments that Geert here, by the way, his, his name is spelt G-E-E-R-T, but we found out the G is kind of silent, isn't it's it? It's Heert, 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 yes. And um, by the way, Bob, if I could just interject to let yeah. the people know out there that I did videotape uh, Mr. Wilder's question and answer period in the London event. And uh, the International Free Press Society were grateful enough, or, or kind enough, I should say, to allow me to post that. And you can find it on our YouTube channel, the uh, question and answer period with Mr. Wilders. And also Rory Leishman's, um, was, was, uh, he closed off the event. Now, mm -hmm. I don't have that video up yet, but uh, that will come up as well. Now, we will, be, we will be hearing from some of these speakers and some extras in, in, a, in a minute or two. Um, just some basic I don't know if these are facts or not, but this is what I, you know, you, you hear so many different stories about the interpretations of the Koran and about moderate Muslims versus um, Islamists, okay, and Islamism. And, in fact, in a lot of the uh, media coverage I was looking at, you know, I, I was disappointed in, in that it didn't really give us much content. It was more of a, of a very, um, you know, none of the media addressed... Builder's message, his basic message. They were all trying to be morally equivalent, and they all rejected his his notion that Islam could be different from any other religion. And they wanted to make the thing they objected about him was that he was treating it differently. And uh, so it's interesting. For example, in this one, who is this from? This is in the Globe and Mail by Doug Sanders. Okay, March 11th a year ago, and he writes about Wilders, who's um, who, by the way. Uh, 
did a 2008 short film called Fitna mm -hmm. that juxtaposes Quranic verses and extremist Islamic teachings with scenes of terrorist violence and Islamic oppression, which was actually shown in the House of Lords in London a year ago, and they played it there. And uh, he writes that in isolation, it can be viewed a number of ways. It could be a warning. It, it could be warning everyone about the dangers of Islam, or Muslims about the political manipulation of their faith, or everyone about the deadly consequences of literalist religious belief. Now, I think all these things are the same. I don't think there's three ors here. I think those are all three of the same thing. And he says the last two ideas find a lot of sympathy in liberal-minded people, but I notice he said that means the first one doesn't. They don't like the idea that, that um, he's warning people about the dangers of Islam. But it's okay to warn people about uh, manipulating their faith or about literalist beliefs, you see? And so what they're saying is, is that, you know, he's saying, he, he says, I wonder why if, if uh, Wilders has ever really read Mein Kampf. Perhaps we've forgotten, perhaps he doesn't realize it himself, but his words in the message of Fitna are exactly what was said about the Jews, right? Because he wants to, um, you know, his opposition to this one religion. But the irony is that's still being said about the Jews today <laughs> by, by the Islamists. And yet... You know, in, in Holland, where, where uh, Wilders is from, they have banned the Koran, and that's how he got into a bit of trouble. So we'll learn more about Mr. Wilders' problems coming up in this next clip, and what we're going to hear from is from a 2011... Oh, oh this was a little while ago, April 18th, Leonard Peikoff of the Objectivist Institute, who, um, as he will describe here, doesn't usually like to comment on current affairs, but found himself... Uh, compelled to do so. And then we'll hear Mr. Wilders himself on the other side of this break talking about why, well, he's actually, he's actually challenged by a, um, a questioner in the audience, which was very interesting, on his issue of immigration. And I guess you're going to be speaking to that when we get back. Hey, Robert? I'm going to challenge him as well later on. Okay, great. We'll be back right after this. I've said that I do not want to discuss current political issues on the podcast. That's not my primary concern. But once in a while, something comes up that I have to make at least a brief comment of because it is too awful to ignore. And I'm thinking here, a question raises it as follows. What do you think of the case of the Dutch MP? His name is Geert Wilders, I think, but I don't know the pronunciation. Is a Dutch MP now on trial in Amsterdam? I think it is horrendous and vicious on the part of uh, the Dutch uh, to put this man on trial with uh, possible uh, criminal uh, penalties. He is on trial not for anything he did, but for his statements exposing the essence of Islam. Statements, by the way, which as far as I can tell, haven't read them all, are perfectly accurate. But he exposes the essence of Islam, including making clear the meaning of a good portion of its holy text. He also expresses alarm over the Islamization of Europe, parenthetically, which I regard as not only a fact, but uh, the most probable future uh, of Europe will be the... Uh, withering away of Christianity and the domination uh, of Islam, of the entire continent of Europe. That's my opinion. He gives some documentation of what is already happening in that regard. Now, I gather that he faces up to two years in prison because this is a hate crime, 
That's what they call it. In this country, they call these things hate crimes also, which, quote, incites discrimination. In this case, a discrimination against uh, Muslims. The government is not contending that he is making factual errors. I quote from uh, one of the prosecutors right before the trial started, quote, it is irrelevant whether Wilder's witnesses might prove Wilder's observations to be correct. What's relevant is that his observations are illegal. In other words, truth is no uh, defense. To prevent, uh, quote, discrimination comes above truth, which means above reality, above anything. Of course, as an objectivist, I deny entirely that the government has any business concerning itself with or trying to combat, quote, discrimination, whether that discrimination is right or whether it is wrong. This is no more than an attack on free uh, speech. Here, talk of um, uh, restrictions on immigration, um, restrictions on on, on dress, uh, restrictions on um, well, restrictions uh, generally. Uh, uh, the, the, you don't like restrictions. I don't like restrictions. It strikes me as it strikes me as anti-liberal, and I'm I'm wondering why you think um, a, uh, a renewed emphasis on assimilation and. Um, liberal values like uh, freedom of expression, um, a, a concern uh, for um, individual autonomy. Um, why that's not enough? Um, I, I don't know about the Dutch uh, case, I can't speak to that. But I would think that in Canada, um, we wouldn't need to impose restrictions on mosque building. No? Am, am I wrong? Why not? Uh, let's, let's please put the, allow the question to be put. Yeah. Well, why not simply a renewed emphasis on assimilation and liberal values like freedom of expression? Why wouldn't that be sufficient? Well, um, you use your freedom of speech, so I respect every question um, you ask me. Um, but um, you have to be, um, I have to be honest about it. What you're saying is, 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 is totally wrong. If you, as a matter of fact, would not restrict um, the immigration in Canada will happen what is happening in Europe today. The Islamization process will continue even more. There are many surveys that show that the more Islam you get in a society, the less freedom you will get. So if we really want to fight for our freedom, if we really want to stand for our identity, for our values, and the values that are based on, on, on Christianity, on Judaism are really, when you look at how you treat women, how you treat apostates, the separation of church and state, are totally different like water and fire between our culture and the Islamic culture. So if you would be, I don't know if you are, if you would be a cultural relativist and you would say it doesn't really matter in which country I live, it doesn't really matter if my children are um, and, uh, will grow up with perhaps the burqa on uh, or not, if there will be enslaved by the men, if there will be polygamy, if there will be genital mutilation, if there will be honor killings, if apostates should be killed. If you really don't care about that, 
Your way is the way, but I do care about that. I don't want that. I want that we stay a free country. I, want, I am proud of the identity that we have, and I will fight everybody who wants to change it. So I fight Islam, and it's the only way to do it. And that, of course, was Mr. Hert Wilders speaking here in London. And you do have to hand it to him. He is a passionate speaker, and he's very passionate about this topic. But you had uh, something to say, Bob, about... Yeah, you, you told me I misspoke just before the break. Oh. I said that they had uh, banned the Koran. I didn't mean... I meant Mein Kampf. Yes. <laughs> okay. The Netherlands and, has banned Mein yes. Kampf. And as a matter of fact, this is why Mr. Wilders is in front of a hate crime uh, charge right now, five charges, is because in Parliament he put forward a motion to ban the Koran based on the same list of criteria that they had used to buy in Mein Kampf, which was, of course, anti-Semitism and uh, incitement to violence. Mm -hmm. Of course, they rejected that particular uh, motion, and uh, that was the intent of Mr. Wilder's motion, apparently, was to show them as being hypocritical. Uh, to ban one book for one reason and yeah, not called, another he, book. He for was the same calling reason. the left out on its own, on right. its own terms. And, you know, and, and, you know, he lives in a society that has already determined that a single book can be dangerous enough to necessitate banning. Right, Mein Kampf. Yes, and yet doesn't consider a book containing similar messages. For the record, equally dangerous. For the record, um, I've seen Mr. Wilders on video saying that he does not want to ban any books. He was simply making the point that they are being hypocritical. And he said that on Sunday night again, too. Yeah. But we won't be hearing that part today. No. But uh, we are going to be hearing something about immigration now, are we? Well, yeah, I'd like to just perhaps... This um, is a touchy issue for a lot of people. It is a touchy issue, and I've, I've racked my brain about it, and um, I don't think that there's an easy solution to the problems that Mr. Wilders is alluding to. Though um, I've, I've put together a little thought experiment, if you will, a, a scenario I'd like uh, you to consider. Oh, sounds like fun. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Just consider a sovereign nation, uh, fictional sovereign nation, population of, say, a million. Now, the nation is a nation based on freedom, individual rights, capitalism. It's relatively peaceful with its citizens choosing to think and act as they see fit in their own rational self-interests. They have their problems, but they're infrequent and nothing that can't be handled. Every year... They let in people from neighboring countries who would like to join their nation because they like what they see. Doesn't sound like any country that you might know of, Bob. Mm -hmm. They, too, like freedom and capitalism and the right to decide how they want to act and what they want to think. The nation accepts them with open arms and welcomes the opportunity to increase their diversity in ideas and cultures. All are enriched by the mixing. However, one of the nation's neighbors is a rather large nation, let's say of about 100 million people. This nation is tribalistic, theocratic, supremacists in its beliefs, despotic, unfree, undemocratic, and does not respect individual rights. It's a nation filled with people living in fear, with the women subjugated and relegated to second-class citizens, forced to undergo bodily mutilations, and regularly beaten should they disobey their ma male masters. The government of this nation regularly kills or maims its own people if any individual member chooses to think differently from the official doctrine. And tragically, the vast majority of the citizens of the totalitarian nation accept their lot and actually think that their barbarous ways are better than being free. Now, until recently, only a few of the people from this totalitarian nation were able to escape their predicament and join the freer country in a quest to live a better life. But recently... 
more and more of the larger nation have chosen to emigrate to the freer nation, spurred on not by a desire to enjoy the freedoms practiced by their neighbors, but by a desire to accept the social welfare that the free nation has only recently decided to bestow upon its citizens and newcomers. Things like free housing, free health care, a livable wage without having to earn it. Well, by that time, it's not a free nation anymore, is it? Yeah, and many other social welfare benefits. Now, the freer nation... Although there's a lot of free stuff in a non-free nation. <laughs> yes, free, not yeah. in that sense, though. Now, this freer nation reveling in the blessings of capitalism, you see, recently decided to redistribute its wealth to other less fortunate, and in doing so, not only put into jeopardy its own freedom, but attracted people from neighboring countries who, attracted by this allure of of an effortless existence, sought to take advantage of the freer nation, a nation becoming less free, as you say, Bob, with every dollar it redistributes. Now, the question the freer nation now faces it is, should it continue to allow unrestricted immigration from the totalitarian nation to the point where in just a few generations its population will be overwhelmed by the people from the much larger theocratic nation? The freer nation seems oblivious to the fact that the people from this totalitarian nation are refusing to accept their beliefs or assimilate into their culture. They seem not to notice when the newcomers take the social welfare handouts from them, while at the same time spitting in their faces and chastising them for their ungodly ways. They find it hard to believe that there exists in this world people who actually hate freedom, who hate capitalism, who hate anyone who does not think like them, act as they do, or pray to the same God as they do. Now, the people of this free nation refuse to accept that in just a short while, the people from the theocratic country will constitute a majority in their new home. And since they are in a democratic country, they will vote to make the smaller nation just as uncivilized as their former home. As well as dominating the host nation in numbers, the newcomers are training their children in separate schools to despise their new home, to not befriend their neighbors, and to keep to their own kind. Some are taught to actually kill their hosts and destroy their buildings and infrastructure and government institutions. Some infiltrate the political system and corrupt it to their own theocratic ideology. Now, the answer to, as to the, question, uh, to the question as to whether or not the smaller, freer nation should continue to accept unrestricted immigration from the theocratic nation is no. Every free nation, in my opinion, has the right to restrict immigration only to those who are willing to accept the fundamental principles of their new home. Immigrants must understand the political system they are welcomed into. They must learn the language. They must forego any cultural practices which are found to be illegal in their new home. They must be willing to adapt and change their behavior, or they should be denied entry. What is at stake is the very sovereignty of the host nation and the very essence which makes it unique and free. After hundreds of years of accepting immigrants from other countries, the freer nation has to realize that while things like race and gender are irrelevant to a person's moral character and suitability for citizenship, not all countries are equal, not all cultures are equal, and not all ideologies or religions are equal. Some countries, cultures, ideologies, and religions are better than others. And the freer nation, in its ingrained humility, finds it hard to accept the fact that theirs is the superior country, that theirs is the superior culture, and that democracy 
is superior to theocracy. Capitalism is superior to socialism. Freedom is superior to totalitarianism. The freer nation is standing on the edge of a precipice. If it chooses to blindly ignore reality and leap off the precipice, it will perish. If it looks over the edge and doesn't like what it sees, then it should turn around and stand on firm ground and say, no, we don't want to go that way. So that's my little take on immigration. Obviously, I sort of agree with restricting well, immigration a, from totalitarian nations if those nations as a whole refuse to assimilate into the freer that culture. That must have been a tough conclusion for you to arrive at given your natural inclination to complete open immigration. I am usually and, and complete not, open we're immigration. We're total liberals on this, really. Totally liberal, but you know what's <laughs> changed my mind? Is the fact that in an ideal country, in an ideal free country, yes, open immigration, because the people of this ideal free country understand what they have, can articulate what they have, and can argument for it, and they have the protection of law. But Canada, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, has gone down the path of socialism, has gone down the path of tyranny itself, has instituted human rights commissions to, uh, and have thought police, has, has uh, favored some religions over others, has, you know, become a totalitarian nation in and among itself. And given that, we must stem the tide, I think, of importing more people who embrace totalitarianism and reject outright freedom and capitalism. Mm -hmm. We'll hear more about totalitarianism later in the show, again from Leonard Peikoff, because he has some interesting comments to make, too. Um, time for a break? Time I think for it a break. is. Uh, coming up again, on this side and on the other side of the break, we're going to be hearing from Hirt Wilders. And on this side, he'll be talking about... Um, he's still asking... This is in the question and answer period. We really didn't uh, record anything in the official speech period. And uh, he's gotten a question here about someone who's very frustrated about not, you know, if you're listening to CHRW right now, this is probably the first time you've even heard about this event happening in London, right? It hasn't been in the media. See anything in the free press about no, it? No, it wasn't in the free press. I think it got a little mention uh, on the National Post, and of course it was online. But other than that, no, a lot of people don't even know that Mr. Wilders was here in London. That's right. And on the other side, when we come back, we'll be taking a look at Mr. Wilders' point of view that Islam is not like other religions, and we'll take a closer look at that claim when we come back after this. This, uh, this information is not being made public. People that care about our society aren't getting a chance to get mad because the media is not telling us what's going on, and I'm sick of it. Excuse me. Can you put your question to Mr. Wilders? Yes. What is, is this... The, uh, is the news media muzzling the problem in Europe as, as bad or worse than it is here? Uh, can you answer that? Well, uh, it's probably worse in Holland, but <laughs> I don't know how it is. You know, the media, uh, to, be, to be honest, the media indeed um, is an enormous problem. In Holland we have, um, as you probably have, uh, public uh, state-subsidized TV, and 99% of it is and liberal, and they will not make any reports about the things you mentioned. We have um, commercial TV and commercial media, but they are only interested in quizzes and um, soaps and uh, other things. <laughs> so the only thing you can do is to get uh, political support. Because um, when I was not a member of parliament, and I tried to make public and expose many of those things, it was very difficult to do. 
But if you have a political force and you can speak about it in parliament and you can give interviews about it, there was no alternative for the media to do that. And so the things that I believe is the most important thing to do is to find and to elect politicians with guts. They are there. They must be there. Give them no excuses. And they have a lot of support. My party, like I said, in Holland has between 15 and 20% of the vote. There was a survey in Germany not so long ago that proved that if a party like my party for freedom, something like that, would emerge in Germany, they would get 20% of the vote. In the United Kingdom, a similar survey showed that if there would be a democratic party, not like the British National Party, which really is a racist party, would start, they would get 20% of the vote. Believe me, people like yourself are in increasingly numbers fed up with what is happening and the fact that it's not exposed and it's being put under the carpet. So find, find, please, this is my a very important advice, find your politicians and make them expose as they can, as nobody else can. The problem that we face is that um, most of the political elite, the political correct politicians, see Islam as a religion, like Christianity, like Judaism. And my point is that it's not. I mean, you are, you are being labeled as a xenophobe or a racist if you say that it's not to be compared, but I strongly believe it. This is the cultural relativism, the, the biggest disease in the free Western world today that I was talking about. Islam, and this is one of the reasons I'm standing in court in Holland uh, today, um, I said that the Quran could be compared to Mein Kampf. And it was only, not only a comparison of books. If you look at, um, at Christianity, and if you compare it with Judaism or um, um, Islam, you will see that they are not leaves of the same tree. You will see that Islam is an ideology, an, 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 an totalitarian ideology because it wants to rule every aspect not only of one's life but also of a whole society and this makes it with 500 other uh, reasons not comparable with Christianity or with Judaism so it makes it more comparable with other totalitarian ideologies like communism or fascism where if you were not a communist you were wrong. Like if you were in Nazi Germany, you were not a national socialist or fascist, you were wrong. While in Islam, if you are not a Muslim, if you are a Kufa, you are wrong. And you will be expelled or killed or, or the worst things will happen to you. So we should, we should not make Islam a part of the freedom of religion, which is very difficult. We have in Holland, as part of our constitution, um, the freedom of education. You probably have it in your constitution as well. And what I find most of the most disturbing things is that we have in Holland Islamic schools. The worst thing that a society can have, that you can have young children, young girls and young boys who you want later to integrate, to assimilate in your society, to get be educated in a system of apartheid, where they, their heads are being filled with all the 
crazy things and the hatred of the Quran. This is something we should stop. So I advocate a stop, a total stop immediately and a closure of all Islamic schools in Holland. And the argument, the argument that is used against me is that I discriminate because they have a right under the freedom of education. And I tell them that I always learned that you only have to treat equal things that are equal. And Islam is not equal to Christianity and Judaism. And I have not a problem with Christian schools. And I have not a problem with schools that are based on uh, Judaism. But I have a problem with Islamic schools. So the only solution we have is to make sure that people start to believe and to get a discussion going that Islam is not so much a religion but an ideology. Sure, it has a temple. It has a holy book, it has a God, so it has religious aspects, but that's about 5%. 95% of Islam is an evil, totalitarian ideology, and we should start treating it as such. Powerful comments, no doubt, eh, Robert? Indeed. As a matter of fact, I think that if, if anybody's offended by these comments that Mr. Wilders is making, then that is the litmus test to understand that you live in a free country which respects freedom of speech. If you're not offended, how can you tell you live in a country that respects freedom of speech? That's true. And, of course, yeah, that is a test of it. Now, to speak to this issue, this isn't the first time I've discussed some of these ideas. You know, this, this broader issue has a lot to do with globalism and... Um, quote, the new world order, but globalism in general. The world's becoming a smaller place, as they say. And mm-hmm. so we all have to learn to live and get along with each other True. at some point. And this was a theme of John McMurray when I last looked at these exact ideas. And I've done that before on the show. can't give you the exact date. but um, So what he has to say here, and I, I thought that this spoke just so well to our subject today. This was actually taken from his speech, given of all places, in Kingston, Ontario. January 1949 at Queen's University, and it's called The Conditions of Freedom. And this might sound like a little bit of a tangent, but I have to start off with this preamble about love. We heard earlier from Mr. Solomon that there was apparently no word for love under the Islamic doctrine in that sense. And that, that bears notice. And I, I went, to, went to look at see what um, John McMurray had to say. And he defines love not in the sense that some people might. It has nothing to do with the sexual impulse in this sense, but in the sense of brotherhood. And he says that love as a positive ground motive of personal activity can best be defined as a capacity for self-transcendence or the capacity to care for the other. So love is for the other, but fear is for the self. In actual experience, of course, both motives operate together, and one may dominate the other. Where fear is dominant, the self becomes the center of reference, and all commerce with the external world is for the sake of the self. Conversely, when love is dominant, the center of reference lies outside the self, and the activities of the personal life are for the sake of the other. So in other words, Robert, what he's saying is that love in this context means the absence of fear, at least to the extent that fear is not the dominant thing. 
And now he comes to the point of the world, you know, the world's great religions, the three that have been permanently effective, as he calls them, the largest ones, of course. And those are, and by the way, this was, this was said back in, uh, what did I say, 1949, when he wrote all this and said all this. And he says, only three religions have been permanently effective, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. And of course, under Christianity, we would have Judaism as well, since they're Basically, Christianity is a subcult of, of, uh, of um, you know, Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. Yes, that's, I never understood that when I was raised <laughs> as a Christian. How come he's a Jew, right? We're not in part of that religion. Oh, we are part of that religion. Oh. But they are differentiated by the types of motivation which underlie the, lie them, writes um, McMurray, and which provide the motive force of their expansion. Now, here's where I think the rubber hits the road. He says, in both Buddhism and in Islam, the negative motive is dominant. In other words, fear. The dominance of fear has two expressions. We see this in individuals, too. One is a withdrawal into the self from the other, and the second is an aggressiveness directed against the other. And so, he says, Buddhism, of these two religions, seeks universal fellowship through withdrawal from the enmities and dissensions which frustrate personal fellowship in the actual world, as he puts it. Islam, on the other hand, seeks it through aggression and through compulsion. So both of these motivations are fear-based. They're not based on the sense of, you know, you take your, your brother for what he is until you have a reason to fear him. He has to give you a good reason. Christianity, on the other hand, he says, is positively motive, motivated. It seeks a universal fellowship realized in the actual conditions of human life a brotherhood of mankind, a kingdom of heaven on earth. So that's how he sees the difference of those two, or three religions, but those two motivations. And he says, if you understand the general principles which govern any human fellowship, you can ask the practical questions. And what conditions must be fulfilled by a community if it wants to extend without limits to everyone to be a universal fellowship? You know, how, how, how could we possibly include people that may be hostile to us? And he says a technique for the expansion of a fellowship, if one may use such a phrase, must be a technique for the elimination of fear. The exclusion of fear is the principle of a fellowship which intends universality has both an internal and an external reference. Internally, the fellowship must be constituted in such a fashion that it is potentially universal. It must, in principle, be open to everyone, and therefore no principle which differentiates between people such as race, sex, nationality, or creed must enter into its constitution. Externally, it is not afraid of those who are outside its membership, whether they are individuals or groups, but they are outside only because they exclude themselves, and they exclude themselves because they are afraid. We come back to the fear thing again. So the problem is, how do you overcome the fear that, that they use to exclude themselves? You know, it's like you can, you can invite them in, they don't want to come. Mm -hmm. And when they do come, they're not changing to, our, to, to, you know, to the standard of the society. Not everyone, but the people who, are, who stick to these um, philosophies. And he says, you know, you can only do this if the community which seeks to include them in its fellowship is one in which no one would rightly feel afraid. So it can't withdraw, nor can it become aggressive. And that creates a problem. And he says the critical issue now is, what attitude should a society take to aggression against itself? Do you just ignore it? Because he says if you refuse to defend yourself, that invites aggression and provides 
the condition for more successful aggression, right? You, ha- you can't just sit there. So here McMurray points out that any effort to build a universal, all-inclusive society that does not discriminate on the grounds already established would have to be what we might call a pacifist one. He says it's the only way to do it because you can't be aggressive. You can't be out there and say that, you know, everyone's welcome and we're, we're open to all everyone. You know, you can't say we believe all people should be equal and then say except for women, blacks, gays, Jews, Christians, or Muslims, anything like that. That would be hypocrisy and that wouldn't be the free society that we all envisage for people everywhere. But as McMurray warns, there's no guarantee that a universal society's pacifism will be successful in any particular instance. But to remain pacifistic in the face of direct aggression, again, only invites more aggression. It is not a pacifism based on love, but a pacifism based on fear and intimidation. Now, that's interesting. Are we pacifists because we love everyone and we want to include them, or are we being pacifistic because we're afraid? I think it's a a little of both, don't you? It is. Like he says, there's there's no, this is all dominant, you know, which is the most dominant. You can be one way or the other. But, you know, I think it explains a common observation I've heard quite often made with respect to Arab attitudes in the Mideast, you know. Uh, Many Islamist Arabs disrespect the West because they see the West's pacifism, which is often expressed through things like foreign aid, you know, or refusal to condemn their own violence, as a sign of fear, right? Not of love and self-confidence and moral righteousness, but a sign of fear. And so when they see the West tolerating their violence and some intolerance, they believe the West is afraid and therefore is motivated by the same things they are. Hmm. You see where I'm going with this? I'm, uh, this is kind of new to me. I do, and you know something? It's, it speaks to the fear element because do you know how many Muslims are actually in the Netherlands, Mr. Wilder's country? 5.8% at the last census. Yeah, that's not a large amount. That is a very small amount. Mind you, it's in a, a country of 16 million people, so physically it is mm-hmm. a, a large number of people, but percentage-wise it's a small number of people, and yet there are so many problems caused by these people that Mr. Wilders has to travel the world to talk about it. And you wonder, are the problems caused, quote, by these people or by the tolerant society that sits back and because of its fear, Mm. or is it its love? You tell me. We can't answer that. I'm going to leave that one open. Yes. Um, (laughs) That they don't do anything. So, you know, when we go around with our trusting Judeo-Christian ways, constantly offering our friendship to those who choose to exclude themselves. Not that we're, you know, it's not like we're saying you can't come in. We'd like them to come in. But from such potential, quote, friendships, as McMurray would call it, uh, and who see our offer as a threat because they're afraid and because life without fear is an unknown quantity to them. How can you, you know, I've seen that even in Iron Curtain countries. Just my own family came from the other side of the Iron Curtain, Hungarians, people from, from the East who are incredibly distrustful about authority, about the state, you know, um, and, and, and it's ingrained in them. The more socialist a country is, the more its people become distrustful of their government and of each other. And that's, the, that's the, to me, the greatest crime in the world today. And so, you know, what McMurray says is we can sum up the general argument without special reference to Christianity, he says, in this way. He says a universal community would be one in which, in fact, all people are potentially friends. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? He says, for this, two conditions are necessary. One, an intention to behave in this fashion, and two, a common way of life that is shared by all. And here he speaks about old traditions breaking down and that we have to set set up a new tradition for the world as a whole. 
And a tradition is an embodiment in the habits of common life. It is a <coughs> system of values, he says. A universal tradition could only be grounded in the habit of treating all people as persons. McMurray concludes that while a proper political framework is a necessity, it's not sufficient for the condition of freedom to actually exist beyond some theoretical ideal. He says, we are asking of the politician what politics by its nature can never achieve. A unity of fellowship, because it is unorganizable, because it is necessarily spontaneous, lies outside the scope of politics. The achievement of an efficient unity of world cooperation is indeed a political task, he says. But if we commit it wholly to the politicians, then we ought not to be surprised if what we get is a loss of freedom everywhere. Hmm. I wonder if he's right about that. Politics is necessary to freedom, but a democratic uh, polity is possible only for a human community which has established a common way of life upon a basis of mutual trust. Freedom is conditional, and these are its conditions. So isn't that interesting, Robert? We're back to establishing a freedom culture. It sounds very much like Mr. McMurray yeah. would agree with Mr. Builders and at least myself in, on that other in, point. In, I think so. Mm-hmm. And you have to get into this habit of thinking and acting in a certain way. And we had to break with tradition, the old one, and establish a new tradition, the new one, universal freedom. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Robert, some concluding comments? Some, some things concluding we should, comments, yes. Should avoid. Okay, we'll be back right after this. But it was Vol who put the fruit on the trees, caused the rain to fall. Vol cared for us. You'll learn to care for yourselves with our help. And there's no trick to putting fruit on trees. You might even enjoy it. You'll learn to build for yourselves, think for yourselves, work for yourselves, and what you create is yours. That's what we call freedom. You'll like it a lot. And you'll learn something about men and women, the way they're supposed to be, caring for each other, being happy with each other, being good to each other. That's what we call love. You'll like that, too, a lot. I gave many radio shows, which you can look up if you want, on the issue of hate speech. And my thesis was the government has no business investigating the feelings of the perpetrator apart from the actions and that its only concern should be the action, not the feeling behind the action. The government has to punish you if you uh, assault someone, but they don't add five years if you assault him and hate him too. There is no such thing as Uh, your feeling adding to your crime. What happens in your soul is up to you, and in fact is known only by you. Maybe this uh, Dutch MP is not filled with hatred. Maybe he's actually filled with fear for the innocent that he believes are going to be slaughtered. Maybe he's filled with love. He's a patriotic Dutchman, and he wants his country to prosper, and he sees this as a threat. Who is to come out and say, this is a hate monger spewing his emotions on a poor, innocent group? It's disgusting. And if you ask these people, well, how do you know it's hatred? They say, well, his very statement proves it. So his statement proves hate, and his hate proves the evil of his statement. 
But the government penalizing a person for his emotions, saying that his emotions can make him have a higher jail penalty, uh, uh, is is a huge step on the way to totalitarianism because the difference between a mixed economy statist and a totalitarian is that the totalitarian wants to control not only your actions and your obedience and your voting, but your inner soul. He does not want you to have the emotions he does not approve. That's the essential aim of the real totalitarians. That's why they're called total. And this is a major step on the way this whole idea of hate crime and uh, respect for the feelings of uh, other people is one major example of the horrendous direction in which we are moving. This is just right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Now, Bob, I've already alluded to my agreement with Mr. Wilders that immigration from predominantly Islamic countries should be severely curtailed but not necessarily eliminated altogether, but cut back drastically to the point where we can accept just enough that can be assimilated into our culture. Mr. Wilders, however, is making other recommendations which I do not agree with, perhaps because I've trained myself, not just yourself, Bob, to think of any restriction on one person to be a restriction on all. Or perhaps I just don't want our country to become totalitarian in its defense against totalitarianism. Yeah, it's always a... Uh, you know, we've almost taken that attitude in North America since 9-11. Yes, the Patriot Act, for example. The Patriot Act, all those things. Now, if we take, for example, Mr. Wilder's recommendation that we ban the burqa, then we must accept the fact that governments can dictate the clothes we can or cannot wear. This is not um, too dissimilar than the ban China has just placed on the jasmine flower because it has become a symbol for the re revolution in Tunisia. If we expel people who speak out against our system of government, then we must accept the fact that people like me and you, Bob, who are advocates of freedom, could be the first to go. That's what I think, yeah. If we allow <laughs> the government to say that no mosques should be built, as Mr. Wilders suggests, then we must realize that we are giving the government the power to decide on which god we can worship, where we can gather, and who we can associate with. Now, the greatest strength of a free nation has its restrictions on the use of government force, not its people. Its strength comes from its practices of freedom of speech, of expression, of the right of its citizens to assemble freely, and of the right to believe in whatever god or gods you choose to believe in, or not to believe in any deity at all, if you wish, of the right to try and peacefully persuade other people to your point of view. Unfortunately, the increasing weakness of the freer nations of this world is their inability to correctly explain why freedom is better than totalitarianism, why capitalism is better than socialism, why freedom of speech should be protected, why government should be restricted to protecting individual rights and not restricting them. The freer nations of the world, like Canada, the Netherlands, Britain, Japan, and the United States of America, to name but a few, have not been tested like this in the last two generations, not since we battled the fascism of Mussolini, the Nazism of Hitler, or the communism of Stalin have we had to explain why ours is the better system of living. Perhaps back when we had to defend our way of life against these totalitarian ideologies, the horrors and immediacy of war sharpened our intellect. But today, we're seeing a slow erosion of our societies, a creeping totalitarianism, partly of our own making, perhaps for our collective feeling of guilt for some 
of our imperialistic bullying of the distant past, or for not instilling in our children the necessary historical and philosophical arguments for why some countries are better than others, for why some cultural practices are more civilized than others. Perhaps our trusting nature, our naive, benign view of the world will be our downfall, Bob, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes I wonder if all the explanations of freedom in the world will make a difference to certain people. That's why I found McMurray's comments so interesting. You know, he sort of says, you can explain all you want, but does that rid that person of his fear? Mm. If that's all that motivates him, do you think he's listening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's that's part of the problem. You know, the Christian ethic that we practice, uh, most people practice in this country of love thy neighbor I don't think they gave much thought to the neighbor who doesn't really care if you love him or not or has no intention of reciprocating that feeling and to probably just stab you in the back just for looking at you. But you know something, Bob? Whatever the reason for the problems we're facing today, we are standing on a precipice, just like in the story that I told at the beginning of the show. I agree, and I think Mr. Wilders is giving us all a warning that we should take heed, at least in some way. That's it for today, folks. We've got to... Get out of here for another week. And so join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here next week. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be... Islam, that's a tough religion. Their holy holiday is Ramadan. That's a month-long holiday where every day you can't eat, can't drink, can't smoke, can't have sex till sundown for 28 days. It's different than Christmas.